Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, September 13th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. My name's Guy Ero, and maybe I'll find myself a wife with a flyer one of these days. We're talking about Bering Cisco today with our guest, the one and only Randy Brown. Randy's joining us from Fairbanks, Alaska, where he works as a fish biologist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Hey, Randy. Hey there. Good to be here. So what's really cool about Bering Cisco, and I don't think we can really say this about any other fish in Alaska, perhaps, is they are only found here, correct? In Alaska? That's what it looks like. Right now, we, we know about three spawning populations, one in the Yukon River, one in the Kuskokwim River, and one in the Susitna River. They don't go out into the big ocean like salmon do, but they're an anadromous whitefish, and they distribute out into the ocean to rear along the coasts. So uh, lagoons and bays and other uh, coastal habitats, all the way from Beaufort Sea on the uh, northwest west corner of the state, all the way down into the Bering Sea and the Bristol Bay. They actually are over in uh, Cook Inlet as well, but that's where they rear for several years before they come back to spawn. Cool. And are they pretty distinct, those three populations? They appear to be. The Yukon and the Cusquin population were more similar to each other than either was to the Susitna population, but, but they were distinct. And if there is any gene flow, it, it's minimal. Now, these three populations, can you only tell them apart by looking at their genetics, or is there any morphological differences that you can use to distinguish one from another? That's an interesting question. We did a morphology project a few years ago. I worked with one of the professors up at the university, and we looked at gill raker counts, fin rays, lateral line scales, a number of different morphology characteristics. And the Susitna River population is a little bit different than the Yukon. It would be very hard to tell one individual. We're talking about mean values or uh, things like where they differ a little bit. Gotcha. What do they look like? Just so folks have an idea. Well, Bering Cisco, uh, they have a terminal mouth. That is that the lower jaw and the upper jaw come out to the same uh, distance from the body. And they uh, have pale low ventral fins. That's the fins on the bottom side of the body. And they are a little more than a foot, anywhere from a foot to about a foot and a half long. And they can weigh pound or more when they're uh, mature. Some of them weigh considerably more than a pound, but that's about the average for a mature Bering Cisco. Can you put the Bering Cisco in context of the other whitefish? So there's two of the whitefishes that we call the Corgonus autumnalis complex, and that's the Arctic Cisco on the north coast of Alaska, and they actually migrate over to Canada and uh, spawn in the Mackenzie River. So it's just, we see them in Alaska just as a feeding migration. The Bering Cisco is uh, more west coast, Chukchi Sea, Bering Sea, and those environments. So then the other species of whitefish, there's one other Cisco, and that's uh, the, the least Cisco. And then there's humpback whitefish and there's broad whitefish. They're really large whitefishes. And then uh, the uh, she fish or Inkanu, 
Those fish are also anadromous. In other words, they, some populations go to sea, but not all individuals necessarily will go to sea. And they don't tend to distribute out along the coast. They stay right at the mouths of the rivers, of their natal rivers, and, and feed in the estuary waters there until they mature and they migrate back upstream to spawn as well. But the Bering cisco and the Arctic cisco are the most capable of going long distance out along the coastlines. Once they go to sea, they don't come back into freshwater until they migrate up to spawn. Is there a taxonomic difference between what's considered a whitefish and what's considered a cisco? Or is it just a naming convention that some fish get one and some fish get the other? Well, there are taxonomic differences and there's genetic differences, but they are closely related. There are salmonids. The family Salmonidae does have a lot of different fish that we're familiar with, the trout and the salmon, the chars, the dolly varden, the lake trout, the brook trout. Those are all in the same family with the whitefishes. The whitefishes tend to have much larger scales, and there are features of the head, the bone structure in the head, different proportional body parts and things like that. So I know you've been working in Alaska on the interior, northern Alaska fishes like Bering Cisco and Dolly Varden and Chinook for a long time. And we're, we're hoping to hear kind of your story of how, how you came to be in Alaska and how you landed on working on fish here. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, that is a long story. I'll try to abbreviate it. I grew up in New Mexico, in Santa Fe. And when I was 17, right after I graduated high school, I wanted to go live out in the woods. And so I came to Alaska, went to the university in Fairbanks for one semester. Then I went down the Palmer area and uh, down near Anchorage, a little to the south of of Fairbanks, and uh, milked cows for uh, the rest of the winter. And then moved out to the Yukon, out of Eagle, right where the Yukon River flows into uh, Alaska from Canada. We were squatting out there at the time. All the people were, because there wasn't land for sale. But people lived along the river just like they did back in gold rush times and before. You learn from the people on the river that there's salmon moving by on the Yukon. And so you get a, a gill net and put it in. And Chinook salmon were our food fish. They were moving through in July in that part of the country. And and I, I ended up getting married. I, I would go into Fairbanks looking for a, a sweetheart. Eventually, uh, my wife agreed to come out there with me. So we raised a couple of kids out there for a while and then came into Fairbanks when they were four and eight. And then I was looking for a job. I hadn't had real work since in high school, right? I hadn't worked for a, for a wage. I felt like I could do anything out in the woods, but in town, it was rough. So I went to college. I got a degree in biology and worked for Bureau of Land Management. The next job I got was that fisheries work out on the Yukon, which led into all the whitefish work, the, the sheepfish work that I pursued for a master's degree and then uh, everything else since. Katrina, um, we were sitting down in Anchorage and she was talking a, a big game about you. She was like, ah, oh, you guys would love Randy. Randy is the coolest guy. He is so Alaskan. So, of course, I'm coming about how Alaskan is he? And then she told <laughs> he went out in the woods. He built a house. He found his wife with a flyer. And I don't know about the exact veracity of those claims, but uh, it was a pretty good story. So I'm glad that you just told that. <laughs> well, well, I did post a... Uh, a one ad in the university at Wood Center up at the university one year. 
And, uh, but I got no responses there. I actually met Karen at a solstice festival and uh, uh, address and we wrote for a while. So, <laughs> all right, that's still a good story. <laughs> So we're talking about some big rivers here. You mentioned the Yukon, the Cusco, Susitna. How does one even start in terms of figuring out how to study fish like this? And what are some of the limits, if any, to understanding these populations in such kind of big, sometimes really cloudy rivers? This is one of the big difference between studying mammals and birds where you can actually see them and studying fish where you can't see them until you catch them. We were running a big fish wheel project for chum salmon initially, and then it, it transitioned into just a monitoring program with a camera on the fish wheel so we could count every fish going by. And there were big runs of these bearing cisco. They're the most populous of the white fishes in the river. And I thought this, this fish is different than any of these others because they go to sea. You don't ever find them in the freshwater as juveniles or, or as adults living in the freshwater. They don't do it. They migrate up to spawn and they'd leave again if they survive that. I got to thinking, this has got to be just like the Arctic Cisco in the north. These Bering Cisco are going to follow a similar life history. They're going to distribute all along the coast. They're all going to come back to the Yukon. And so I looked at sampling studies in all these different river systems that have whitefish on the west coast. I researched every paper I could find on it, found out that there are no Bering Cisco except in the estuaries or the lagoons at the mouths along the coast. They don't go up any of the rivers. So I thought, well, that means they've got to be coming back to the Yukon, just like the Colville fish are going back to the Mackenzie. And then I started looking in the Yukon for where they would go, because there's big spawning uh, congregations of other white fishes in the Alatna River, way up the Kayakaka, one of the big trips of the Yukon. I looked through all of those records, fish wheel records, everything in all these different tribs in the Yukon, none, no bearing system except main stem Yukon all the way up into the Yukon flats. And they actually catch them in Canada sometimes. And so we knew that they sometimes went that far, but they don't go up any tributaries. And so then we begin wondering, well, where do they spawn? Are they just random here and there? Do they, is there a trip they go up? And we did that uh, radio telemetry study. It was a two-year-long telemetry project that was able to identify this spawning area in the Yukon Flats, the Yukon Flats National Wildlife Refuge. And about this time was when that commercial fishery started down at the mouth of the Yukon. And, and what had happened was the, this kosher smoked fish market in New York City used to target these, these deep water ciscos in the Great Lakes, in the Laurentian Great Lakes. But those fish have since declined in abundance to the point where they either don't catch them at all and think they're extinct or functionally extinct anyway. So they were reaching out beyond there to try to find a substitute and they found the Yukon Delta. And I don't know how the people in New York found the people in the Yukon Delta or knew that there would be these whitefish there that they could harvest, but they did. They got these large quantities of everything out there. They had least cisco, bearing cisco, humpback whitefish, broad whitefish, shefish. They had all of those species that they shipped back there. And within two years, the folks that were buying it out of New York City said, we only want these kind, the bearing cisco. 
And why was that? Well, I think they were the right size for processing into a partially dried smoked fish product. They were fatter than everything else because they're a marine species. A lot of those other species, it was juveniles or ones that had spawned previously and were in a non-spawning year, so they're not bad enough to make another migration to spawn. So they're in poor condition by comparison. The Bering Cisco were all just these beefy, fat, just fish. So once there became kind of that interest in fishing for that species for that market, what were some of the things that the fisheries managers and biologists needed to figure out to make sure that it could get conserved into the, the long-term future? All the coastal communities along the uh, Bering Sea really like this fish that had been documented in the subsistence literature. And so there was a concern that the fishery might over-harvest the stocks. And they, didn't, they just didn't have any idea how many fish there were. Some people thought there were millions. Other people thought, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe there's millions, but I mean, nobody had a clue. We figured if we can find spawning areas, we might be able to do a a population estimate. And then we wanted to have a genetics assessment to be able to tell whether this was just Yukon fish or whether this was Yukon and Kuskokwim. So we, that was when we, we got money. There was funding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Office of Subsistence Management the managers kept the harvest levels low as far as they could tell. And at the time, I think it was like 10,000 fish. It started at about 10,000 fish. And it started moving up as, as we became confident that there were a substantial amount, that that was a minor part of, of any population. So we're in September now. So are folks starting to fish Right now, is this when the fishery typically happens is mid-September? So the deal with that fishery is it's at the mouth of the Yukon. So they're not catching spawners. They're catching non-spawning fish, either immature or that had spawned last year or the year before and are back there at the Delta, feeding to replenish their stores so they can spawn again or for the first time. And usually they have that fishery in late September or October. And what's the method of catching that folks are using? These folks down there are using small boats and uh, putting out uh, gill nets, either in the lower channels of the river or out along the delta front. And then in terms of kind of that, how the fish travels from Alaska to New York, what's the, how does it do that? What's the process for getting the fish over there? Well, there's a fish processing plant down in Monarch near the mouth of the Yukon called Quick Pack. And what they've been doing is flash freezing these fish. They have a buyer that moves around and gets these fish and then they bring them over and they flash freeze them and they they have these big totes of fish of frozen fish that then boxed up and shipped by air and so the buyers are the ones that are actually cutting them and processing them once these fish make it to new york how are they are they sold frozen do they smoke them how are these fish usually sold to customers if you know so they they are catering to a uh, smoked kosher market the smoked whitefish, which is a classic dish in the kosher world. And so they are partially dried and they are smoked. I saw some things in uh, 10 years ago or so, some pictures of the shops where they were being sold at, and it was 18 or $20 a pound. Dang. Wow. And being like one pound fish, that's like $18, $20 a fish back in the day. Yeah. And they're like a really pretty golden looking 
Oh, yeah. Fish, once they're smoked up, it looked, I oh, saw yeah. those pictures too. Yeah, they got the smoke uh, color. Yeah, that's cool. If folks listening were to take home one thought to ponder about Alaska's fisheries, what would you want it to be? It's a big, wild country that hasn't been devastated with some of the uh, development aspects of the lower 48. And keep in mind that if we don't ruin the habitat, we're going to keep the fish. We ruin the habitat, we'll lose the fish. So far, we've been able to mediate the development so that it's not just ruining everything up here. So, and that hopefully we can continue to do that. All right, Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We hope that everyone gets out there and enjoys all the fish and yeah, check out Yukon Flats National Wildlife Refuge and maybe you'll see a Bering Cisco in New York City. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaquin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.